welcome back. I hope you had a good lunch and a good break. Hope you're ready to go. We got one lecture left to go. Then we'll have questions. There's just three questions in the question box, and look how many of you there are. So we'll have the last talk, and then we'll have questions. And those of you who didn't put questions in the question box can still ask questions. So our last talk is about the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. This is the most important part of Christian ethics. And it's a part you should have in your heart. And to stimulate you to that end, let me tell you a small story. My house is an old, old house and has three stories. And my office is on the third floor. And I have made it a magical place for children. Around every corner and every nook and cranny, there's something marvelous little girls and my daughter has these three tiny little girls and to help make the place more magical and help make me more special grandma the rule is they can't go to the third floor without permission and without supervision but when they were here in the summer there was one day when the house was full of people and I thought oh what the heck so I sent them up to the third floor to play and the, the it was the six year old and the four year old and the four year old was downstairs in a heartbeat and it was drama, and it was tears, and it was depredations, and it was, you know. So I went upstairs to see what the problem was, and it was fairly simple. The six-year-old had committed an injustice, <laughs> which made the four-year-old indignant, and it's because the six-year-old was trying to solve a problem. So I solved the problem, rectified the injustice, and then delivered a lesson and said, this is a special place. And it is my place. And you can be here only if you can show each other the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what they are? (laughs) And the six-year-old said to me, and I quote, she said, Yes, Nana, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, long-suffering, fidelity, gentleness, and (laughs) self-control. I just want you to know that if a six-year-old can do it in adverse circumstances, you can too. (laughs) So we're going to start with the gifts. So here's our gifts, and you'll be surprised to discover I've made you an acronym. (laughs) Puffwalk. So you never, ever have to forget them. You will notice I didn't really ask you to say chop, would you cut? Because I thought you would feel silly. But you could say puffwalk, couldn't you? Puffwalk. Puffwalk, okay. Now, you never have to forget them again. It's P for piety. F for fear of the Lord. Another F for fortitude or courage. Fortitude. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, and knowledge. So there's three in there piety, fear of the Lord, fortitude, that really have something to say about your will. And four of them in there, wisdom, understanding, counsel, and knowledge, that are there because they have something to say to your mind. So let's take a look at them. The first thing to see is that there's a connection between these gifts of the Holy Spirit and the virtues that God puts into your mind when you surrender to him and the Holy Spirit comes inside. And that's confusing because it seems as if one list ought to be enough. 
Why do you need two of them? And the answer is, the answer is that they're not the same. Some of the words are the same, but they're not the same. So I'm going to show you just kind of how it goes. See, justice, temperance, courage, and wisdom, they were on our chaff widget list. And actually, they're represented on our puffwalk list. So wisdom is there as the W in puffwalk. Courage is represented by the F for fortitude. You know, think about it for a minute. It has to be fortitude because nobody can make an acronym if we put that in as courage. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? P-U-F-C is not pronounceable. <laughs> so, so anyway, so courage and wisdom are the same on both lists, on the Puffwalk list and the, and the Chafwijikat list. And then here's an interesting thing. Do you know how fear of the Lord is connected? Fear of the Lord is temperance. When temperance turns into a gift of the Holy Spirit, it becomes fear of the Lord. And justice, when it's a gift of the Holy Spirit, it turns into piety. That's how that works. Now, to understand how all this goes, we've got to start with some idea about what's going on in the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit. And what's going on is something like this. Here's what Aquinas says to try to help us understand it. He says, there's one general way by which God is in all things, by essence, power, and presence. There's one way in which God is in all things. God is everywhere. He's in all things. And one, one general way by which he is, as a cause in the effects. That's one way. But that's the way God is in trees and rocks and things of that nature. There's another way, a special way, in which God is in a thing, and that special way is appropriate for a rational creature. He, by rational creature, he doesn't mean somebody who's always reasonable and very boring. He just means somebody who's got a really cool supercomputer inside the skull as distinct from a rock. So anyway, rational creature just means us. There's a special way in which God is in us. Here's what it is. He's in us as a thing known is in the knower and as the beloved is in the lover. In this special way, God is said not just to be in us, but to dwell in us. Now you might think to yourself, that's a little bit disappointing. Why does God get to be the beloved and I get to be the lover? I would rather be the beloved and he can be the lover. That's nicer. <laughs> but Aquinas is here trying to ward off from you. Aquinas supposes, of course you know God is the lover. It says there right in the biblical text, God is love. So he figures, of course you know that. But what you might think to yourself is, God is love. He's like the force. The force be with you. But you couldn't know the force. You couldn't love the force. It's just out there, like the law of gravity or, or you know, something like that. Aquinas wants you to understand, no, God is available for you to be in a relationship of love because you can know him and you can love him. So it's not just what everybody understands, God's omniscient, God is love, whatever. 
but, but the idea is, no, he's in a relationship with you, a second personal relation. What's a second personal relation? Well, it's the relationship that you have when you say you to something. Unless it happens to be the computer and you say, you stupid computer, that's not a second personal relationship. If, you say, if you're in a relationship with something where you can say you to it and it could possibly say you back, then that's a second personal relation. And you have that relationship to God because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which comes into you as soon as you surrender to God's love. As soon as you stop doing everything religious except being willing to face God. So here's what Aquinas says. He says, Our Lord, speaking of the Holy Spirit, said to his disciples, He will abide with you and be in you. Now, the Holy Spirit is not in a person without his gifts. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are habits whereby a human being is perfected to obey the Holy Spirit readily. That's the idea. So here's what the gifts are. Those wonderful cardinal virtues, chaf wijikat, charity, hope, faith, and so on. They are in a person in grace, but they're in there in a kind of a wobbly way, you might say. They're easily dislodged. They're easily overthrown. You might, in faith, hate your own evil and long for God's goodness. But then again, you might just get disgusted with the whole thing and think, I don't care. I don't care. I'm going on a binge. So those those chaff wujikat virtues that are in there, but they're, but they're not stuck tight. And the gifts are the glue that sticks them down. Here's the basic idea. A gift is a matter of having a habit that makes you able to be moved by the Holy Spirit, which is within you. So the motion comes to you from without, from the Holy Spirit who is within And really, the language is complicated, but the idea is simple. The idea is simple. So you walk out of the house, and you're mad, and you haven't said goodbye to your husband. You're just walking out. Serve him right. He'll discover you're gone soon enough. And then something in your heart says, you know what? Tell him goodbye. Just tell him goodbye. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. And a gift of the Holy Spirit is a habit that makes you more inclined to obey. You know, you might hear that voice and think, yeah, right. No, thank you. But if you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, you are inclined to obey. So there's something that comes from outside you because it comes from the Holy Spirit, but it's within you because you hear the voice inside you. That's the idea. So what we have in these, in these gifts is something second personal. That is, Aquinas says this. He says, the ultimate perfection, he's talking about moral excellence, the ultimate perfection by which a person is made perfect inwardly is joy. It's joy. And joy stems from the presence of what is loved. Whoever has the love of God, however, already has what he loves. As is said in 1 John 4.16, Whoever abides in the love of God abides in God 
and God abides in him. And joy wells up from this. Joy wells up from this. So, you know, you watch these young humans, or maybe you can even remember it from your own life, and they fall in love, and all of a sudden, they are walking on air. And whatever happens, they break a leg, and they can't wait to tell the beloved. They win a prize, they can't wait to tell the beloved. All of a sudden, everything in life is about the beloved. And everything that they experience, the bad stuff, the good stuff, is encompassed in a kind of a fog of second personal relationship where there is a kind of unstoppable hum of joy in life. Because why? Because the beloved is mine and I am his. That's why. And that's what Aquinas thinks. That's what the Christian tradition thinks. That's what the biblical texts maintain is there for every human person who will surrender to God's love. It's not for the Teresa of Avila's and the John of the Cross people. It's for everyone. And in case you don't believe me, this is what Aquinas says. He says, the gifts are necessary to salvation. He says, of all the gifts, wisdom seems to be the highest and fear the lowest. And each of these is necessary for salvation. And so the other gifts that are placed between wisdom and fear, they're also necessary for salvation. So what he's saying is, puff walk. You've got to have all of them, or you don't count as a person in grace. Not that you should rush home and try very hard to become a person of grace, because that would be Pelagian. And it would also be proud, because then you would be trying to get for yourself some excellence. That's not how it works. You can't get it for yourself. It would be proud to try. It would be Pelagian to think you could. Your job is to open your heart, open your mind to facing the Lord. Face-to-face, I-thou relationship. That's the idea. And when that happens, it's the beginning of everything good. It doesn't follow that you will have everything good to its maximal extent in this life. You won't. The Apostle Paul said, I was given a thorn in the flesh to torment me, and I asked God three times to get rid of it, and God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient for each one of us. It's sufficient. So if you can't stand the thorn in your own flesh, just remember God's grace is sufficient for you. Your job is not to try harder. Your job is to let God try harder in you and not to get in his way, not to resist. Now in case you're thinking to yourself, well that makes it easy, I guess I can do everything I want. You fail to hear, you fail to hear what I said in the preceding two talks. You do the bad stuff, that's you resisting the Holy Spirit. So thinking to yourself, well, God will do it. I'll just go run out and and binge or steal or gossip. That's resisting the Holy Spirit, and then all the bad stuff comes. So that's the way it works, and with that kind of general background introduction to the gifts, we'll start looking at particular ones. So here is temperance. This is what I told you in the last lecture. You can think of temperance as a matter of being able to discipline yourself. The matter of being able to say no thanks, no thanks, 
when the dessert is passed because you know that sugar is bad for you and anyway you need to lose a few pounds or more and you shouldn't be eating that dessert. No thanks is temperance as a virtue. But when this becomes a gift of the Lord, a gift of the Holy Spirit, it becomes fear of the Lord. Now, you might be thinking to yourself something like this. Fear of the Lord. That means I'd be afraid of what God would do to me if I did this. That doesn't seem like a very good way to live. But then you wouldn't be paying attention. If you are afraid of what God will do to you, you don't have fear of the Lord. You know what you have? Fear of punishment. And fear of punishment does nobody any good. I mean, it might be good in small children, but it isn't very good in adult human beings. You're not supposed to fear the punishment. You're supposed to fear the Lord. And what would you fear if you feared the Lord? You would fear not his leaving you. Why? Because he already told you, I'm always with you. He already told you, God is love. He already said to you, no one who comes to me will I ever cast out. These are God's promises. So to fear the Lord is not to be afraid of being cast out. It's to be afraid of yourself leaving him and disappointing him. You think of the God you love. You think of the person you love. And you think, well, I could do that, I guess. But actually, I'd rather not because I'd rather love him. I'd rather love him and rejoice him and rejoice myself rejoicing him. That's fear of the Lord. So that's what happens to temperance as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's what happens to wisdom. Wisdom as a virtue is, as I told you in the last lecture, it's knowing, knowing which things are really good and being inclined to go for those things. But as a gift of the Holy Spirit, what it comes to is loving the indwelling Lord above all things. And here you must not get confused and suppose that what is being asked of you is a competition. There's this terrible story told about Jonathan Edwards, the famous New England Puritan. He had a daughter whose name was, I forgot, I'll make it up. I'm making it up, I don't remember. Her name was Elizabeth, let's say. And she was in love with a, a young guy who was in love with her. I can't remember his name either, so let's call him David. So David and Elizabeth loved each other, and David started to die. I mean, they knew he was going to not make it. Elizabeth knew, David knew, they knew he wasn't going to make it, and David said to Elizabeth, I would tell you how much I love you, but now that I'm dying, it's even more important than usual for me to love the Lord above all else. So I'm not sad about leaving you, and I don't want to tell you that I love you. And she said to him, Yes, David, I completely understand. I want you to love the Lord above all things, so I don't want to distract you from the process of dying by telling you that I love you. This is, this is really, it's endearingly dumb, isn't it? I mean, it really is. <laughs> Think about it this way. To love the Lord is to love what the Lord loves. It's to love what the Lord loves. Do you think that you could love me and not love my children? Would that work? To love me is to love what I love, but I love my children. Works like that for God, too. To love God is to love his children. Love of neighbor and love of God are never in competition. They're never in competition. To love God above all else is to love your neighbor also in that way. Why? Because guess what? Each human being who crosses your path 
the stinky guy, the homeless guy, the stupid guy, the guy who has the political views which are in the opposite party from yours, each one of those people is, guess what, the beloved child of your father in heaven. Do you think you can love a parent without loving that parent's children? I don't think so. So that's why when it says wisdom is a matter of loving the Lord above everything, it doesn't mean you should love any human being less. More. You should love them more because each human being is, your, is the beloved child of your Father in heaven. That's how it works. And that brings me to pietas. Now pietas, I left, it's translated piety, but that's a bad translation. I left it in the Latin so you wouldn't be tempted to be confused. Pietas, a really funny old Latin word, and it gets its resonance from Virgil's Aeneid. In the great poem, the Aeneid, of the great Roman poet Virgil, there's a hero, and his name is Aeneas. And he always is called pious Aeneas. So he gives us our picture of what piety is. The reason he gets this name, pious, pious Aeneas, is because this is his story. He lived in Troy, in the city of Troy, and the Greeks came into the city of Troy to destroy it. They burned the buildings, they killed all the people, they enslaved the women and children. So in that world, it's kind of like nuclear war. The entire culture is wiped out when the Greeks come in and everybody is killed or destroyed or hurt in some way. And the people who lived in Troy, the Trojans, they were running out of that city as fast as possible to avoid death and fire or enslavement. And they were running as fast as they could because the disaster was overwhelming them. In those circumstances, Aeneas put his father on his shoulder and took his little boy on his hand. And you know how fast you can run with a toddler at your hand and a father on your shoulders? <laughs> That's the picture of piety. I do have to mention that Aeneas had a wife and he didn't put her on his shoulders or take her by the hand and she got lost in Troy and she died. So, so, <laughs> so this great old Roman virtue is a virtue about fathers. It's a virtue about fathers. And the idea is something like this. Something gives you your birth, your origin, Call whatever that is father. Don't bother me about gender problems. You know, sort them out for yourself. I don't care. But the, but the thing that gives you birth is, you could say, call that, give that the name father. You have a father land. You have a father culture. You have a biological father. You have, you have your father in heaven. And the idea is that to honor, to properly honor what has given you life is piety, pietas, it's pietas. And in your case, pietas as a gift of the Holy Spirit involves a certain sort of relationship to your Father in heaven. When justice on the chaff widgecut list of virtues becomes a gift to the Holy Spirit, what it becomes is pietas. And here's how that works. Aristotle, who helped us think about justice in the Western world, Aristotle said, 
Justice is a matter of giving everybody what is owed to him. And you think, okay, I don't owe you anything, so you get nothing. <laughs> but, but if you think about justice as a Christian virtue, it's a matter of giving everybody what is owed to him as a fellow citizen of the heavenly family, a fellow citizen, possible fellow citizen of heaven, and now you owe somewhat more. Now you owe the corporal works of mercy, the spiritual works of mercy, like that. But when justice becomes a gift of the Holy Spirit, it alters its character like this. It now becomes a matter of honoring your father, loving your father. So you could think about it this way. Um, Remember when Obama was president and he had these two little girls? If we said that Obama was coming to the Cardinal Regali Center with his daughters and you were here, everybody would be in a flurry. Suppose it was said to you, you know, you're going to have to take care of these daughters while Obama goes around and sees things. So you take care of the daughters. There would be an uproar. What do they like to eat? What do they like to do? How old exactly are they? What amuses them? Um, are there rules about what movies we could show them? In? What, what, what do they like to drink? I mean, are they allowed soda or not? Or what should we do? There would be a, an uproar. Why? Well, because they're the president's daughters. I mean, you wouldn't do that for anybody's daughters, but for the president's daughters, it gets pretty exciting. What can we do to take really good care of them? And that's what I said a minute ago. Every human being without exception is the child, not of the president of the U.S., but the boss of the entire universe. That's a pretty exciting status. So when the homeless person accosts you, or when the jerk you have to work with says a mean word to you, what you want to remember is not the president's daughters, but your father's daughters. Now what is owed to them? And here's the answer, anything you can think of to give them. That's pietas. That's pietas. Everything you have that is good is gift and is meant to be given back. And every human being is not the daughter's president, not the president's daughter, but God's child. And when you keep that firmly in mind, it does alter how justice seems to you. And that's the idea. That's the idea. And then there's courage as a gift. There's courage as a virtue and there's courage as a gift. So what the Dickens is different? Well, it works like this. If you have courage, which you have worked hard to get for yourself, it'll make you pretty good to have in battle. If you have courage, which God has put into you as a virtue, then you'll be pretty good to have in the church. You'll be pretty, pretty good fellow worker for the good and the true. But do you know what courage as a gift is? Courage as a gift is the settled conviction that when you die, you will go to heaven. And now suppose you think to yourself, oh, no. Oh, no, you don't. Don't talk to me like that because I know perfectly well that would be presumption. I can find it in the text of Aquinas for you. It's presumption. But um, that's to get mixed up and fall into the Pelagian error. Here's what presumption is. It's thinking you can get yourself to heaven. It's thinking that your condition is now fit for heaven. 
or that something you can do could work yourself into heaven. That would be presumptuous, all right, because guess what? There is not a chance, not a chance in life you've got what it takes to work yourself into heaven. But the settled conviction that when you die you will go straight to heaven is not presumption because it doesn't rely on your efforts. It relies on God's efforts. And I can show you the difference in case it's helpful to you. Suppose you say to me, I have been married for 48 years. Suppose you say to me, what are the chances your husband will divorce you? Now, if you look at the statistics, and you probably have, and I certainly have, then this is what you know. At any age of a marriage, the divorce rate is the same. Pretty close to the same. It's about one in two. So if you say to me, what is the chance that your husband will divorce you? I could say to you, well, it's one in two. (laughs) And if I said to you, there's a one in two chance that my husband will divorce me, what you will think to yourself is, wow, is that marriage ever in trouble? You would say to yourself, I would never think that about my marriage. That's terrible. I'm going to think there's one in two chance your husband will divorce you. Well, those are the statistics. So what's the difference? What do we want me to say? What I would say is no chance. No chance. And in saying no chance, I'm not trying to say I don't know what the statistics are. I'm trying to say I am committed to the human being who is my husband and I believe of him, not that he's a treacherous jerk, not that he has a secret life in which he's engaged in evil. I believe of him that he's good. So he won't violate his vows either. And if that's how it goes for an ordinary marriage, think how it goes for the marriage between the soul and God. If you think God will give up on you and drop you into hell, what are you thinking about him? He will betray your trust in him. You know what that is? Remember when we had blasphemy on one of the slides? That's blasphemy, because it's to believe God isn't good. So a gift of the Holy Spirit that is courage is the settled conviction that when you die you will go straight to heaven not because you can do this but because you have every trust in God you have every trust in God he can do it and as long as you don't give up on that trust he can and will do it that's why I said in the earlier lecture for Christians wishes are horses and we as beggars do ride as long as you don't get off the horse of your wish that God would save you, you will ride on that wish all the way to him. So that's what courage as a gift is, and you can see what kind of courage that is. If you figure, so, so the doctor says to you, you have cancer, you have six months to live. And now you could think to yourself, oh, I can't stand it. But you know, if you believe that the minute you died, the bad stuff would stop and the good stuff would start, how would that change things? See what I mean? That's why this idea is real courage. Nothing can scare somebody who is not afraid to die. That's how that works. And here, for good measure, is a virtue that wasn't on any of my lists. That's because it's a caboose. It's attached to courage as a gift. It just rides along behind. It's magnanimity. Magnanimity is a real funny virtue It's a real funny virtue. If you look it up in Aristotle, this is what Aristotle will tell you. The magnanimous man has a great deal of money and he is willing to spend it on public service. 
and he understands his greatness in the community. That's why he walks slow and talks to very few people because they're not worth it. You think, wait a minute, how did that get to be a Christian virtue? And the answer is, see, Aristotle thinks the great man is more interested in honor. The great souled man, the magnanimous man, more interested in honor than in anything else. You think, I remember those species of pride. That magnanimous man's guilty of pride. Here's how it becomes a Christian virtue. There's honor from human beings and there's honor from God. Honor from human beings diminishes when it's distributed. Diminishes when it's distributed. Why? Because if one person is honored, then the other people can't be. If we're all honored, then we're none of us honored. In Alice in Wonderland, there's a race where they race around and around and around and around. All of a sudden, the dodo calls out, stop! And Alice says, I can't tell who won the race. The dodo says to her, oh, Alice, they've all won and they all have to have prizes. If they've all won and they all have to have prizes, then nobody won. That's how honor from humans is. It diminishes when you distribute it. That's how you know it's a small thing. Christ in the gospel says, how can you guys hope to get anything right if you seek honor from human beings rather than honor from God? Honor from God is a different matter. It's a great good, and it doesn't diminish when it's distributed. Think about what I said a minute ago. Every human being who crosses your path is the beloved child of God. Think about the story of Cinderella. Cinderella is so cool. She, she has crummy clothes, and she's covered in ashes, and she has to do the housework, and her sisters are mean to her. But she's the coolest thing in the story, and why? Because the prince loves her. The prince loves her. Not those mean sisters, but her. Each human being is the Cinderella in the story of, of God's love. The prince loves each one. And what could be more honoring than to have the creator of everything there is want you? I mean, by comparison with, say, winning the Nobel Prize, how, how cool is it to have God want you? How cool is that? So that's magnanimity. And if what you're going for is honor from God, then what you have to spend is not money, but yourself. You have to spend yourself. And you have to spend yourself unstintingly in your money maybe, in your time, in your gifts, in your resources, in the way you spend your day. Do you know what, do you know what a food diary is? Anybody who ever raised a, a teenage girl knows what a food diary is. You make those little critters keep a food diary so you can see what they're actually putting in their mouths to make sure that they're not anorexic. You say to them, you write down everything you eat. And in a week, I'm going to look at that and review it. You can make a time diary like that too. Write down everything that you do and how much time you spend on it in a day and at the end of the week review it and add up those figures. You will be astonished. Do you know what you're wasting? Your life. Your life. Make a time diary. Look what you got and think what can you do to give to the Lord out of what you are wasting? That's what magnanimity is. It's a willingness to spend everything you got. And why 
do you have to not worry about it? Well, because magnanimity is the caboose on courage. You, you can't fail. You can't worry about failing if you already have won the biggest prize of all. If the minute you die, you go straight to heaven, what's to worry? What's to worry? I was just in Australia. We say, oh, no problem. And we think the Australians say, no worries, mate. Actually, what they've taken to saying lately is no drama. No drama. You can think about your life that way, too. No drama. It's no drama. You've already won the greatest prize of all. Spend everything you've got in service to the Lord. Go for broke for honor. And you can do it with courage because you already won. And that honor is available to everybody because it doesn't diminish when it's distributed. It doesn't diminish. So you can give yourself entirely if you've already won the greatest prize there is. And without fear of failure, you can give unstintingly of the gifts you've been given. So that's how that goes. And I'm almost done. I spend all that time on the gifts, but here's the fruits. And I am sorry, but I don't have an acronym. You're on your own. If you think of one, you can mail it to me. <laughs> so here they are. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, goodness, benevolence, mildness, faith, modesty, continency, chastity. So I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'm going to just give you the general structure and then talk about a few of them. These gifts divide, these fruits divide into three parts. Do you remember in the biblical text where Christ says, by their fruits you will know them? This is the fruits. This is the fruits. He's not talking about how much money you make, how many prizes you won, how many books you wrote. This is what he's talking about. These fruits. By their fruits you will know. And the fruits divide into three parts. One part has to do with your relationship to God. One part has to do with your relationship to your neighbor. And one part has to do with your relationship to yourself. The last three have to do with your relationship to yourself. The middle four have to do with your relationship to your neighbor. And the top five have to do with your relationship to yourself. And those are the ones I'm going to talk about just real quick. Here's the top five. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. Now, I have already been saying as vividly as I know how to say, love is central to everything. Your beloved is yours. You are his. Joy comes from this. Peace comes from having the thing you most want already given to you. The check is in the mail. But what I want you to see about these first five is what's next on the list. Patience and long-suffering. Nothing about what I have been saying means that Everything stops hurting in life now and everything is just fine and everything should be looked at through rose-colored glasses. That would be absurd. There's still the betrayal of other people. There's still having the water main fail out of your house. There's still Syrian refugees. There's still cancer. There's still betrayal by beloved people and so on. It's all still there. Patience... Patience 
is on this list because bad stuff doesn't stop afflicting you just because you have the good stuff. There's still tons of bad stuff that comes to you from outside. And patience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that lets you have all that bad stuff without losing love, joy, and peace. They are compatible. And if you don't believe me, think about childbirth. Suppose there's a mother who has been so longing for this child. And now finally the child is coming into the world. The beloved father of this child is right there next to her. They are, they are so excited. This baby is coming. There's weeping with joy over the little newcomer. Do you think this stops the pain of childbirth? That would be a really crazy thought. It hurts just the same. Having joy over the little newcomer does not stop the pains of childbirth. Joy and pain are compatible. And that is the condition for all of us in this life. So that's patience. And you might think to yourself, well, why are there five things? Why aren't there just four things? Love, joy, peace, patience. What's the fifth one? Now, fifth one is on there because sometimes what is the worst affliction for a human being is not what other people do to you. It's the fact that you have to live with yourself. So people who suffer some brokenness in mind, people who suffer from addiction, people who really mind their sins, they may think to themselves, I quit. I have had it trying to live with me. I don't want to anymore. I'm done. It's impossible. It's hopeless. I hate it. And for that, there's long suffering. And it says to you, there's hope. The check is in the mail. You don't have to be afraid of anything, not even of death. Hang on to the feet of Christ. Hang on to your beloved who is yours. It will be over. And you will be what you yourself long to be when it's done. That's long suffering. And it's different from patience. And it's on this list because it says, even if you are really suffering because you have to live inside yourself, you can still have love, joy, peace because your beloved is yours and you are his. So that's what I want to say about the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit. But I wanted to give you something to help you remember the fruits, even though I don't have an acronym. And Julie is going to help me give you this last thing. This will be our last thing and then we're done. Are you ready to help me? This will, this will show you why my little granddaughters knew the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Hang on. She's going to turn up the volume. We have technical difficulties up here. Let me just tell you, we're doing our best. Okay. <laughs> this is the last thing. This is, this is the last thing. Okay. It's the last thing. <laughs> Not a coconut. Fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. You wanna be a coconut? You 
Trust me, it goes on. <laughs> it's too loud now. So there you go. You can look it up on YouTube for yourself. Fruit of the Spirit song. And it will help you so you have it running in your head. You never forget it again. And in case you're tempted to be a lemon one day or a hard-headed coconut one day, you can remember coconut's not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So there you go. That's the heart of that Christian ethical spirit as Thomas Aquinas sees it. And with that, I am done. Thank you, thank you. That's very kind of you. So, uh, Mary Kathleen, what are we doing for questions? How are we going to handle this? How much time do we have? Ten, fifteen minutes at the most. Okay. Okay. What is the check in the mail? Oh, that's a good question. The check in the mail is your beauty and holiness and your perfect love for the Lord in relationship with him. Heaven's not a nice place, even nicer than the country club. Heaven is marriage with the Lord. Think about it. Do you remember what God says to Job? He says to Job, were you there? When I created the heavens and the earth and the sons of God sang for joy? When God first made the stars and the angels watched what he was making. I mean, I sometimes think about it like this. I think God said to the angels, you know, I've got another idea. And they said, and what? He said, I think I'm going to make a, a sentient being out of matter. If I had been an angel, I would have said to him, oh, that's a bad idea. Oh, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. I mean, they'll be fragile how will they even unite? <laughs> and then when God made the stars, when God said, let there be light and made the stars, the angels were overcome and shouted for joy, God says to Job. Wouldn't you like to be there and shout for joy too, being one of the, one of the beloved children of the Lord and being as beautiful in yourself as the stars are in themselves? That's the check in the mail. That's what it is. All right, let's see what else we got here. 
Any ideas on how to get your adult children back into the church, such as attending Mass? Well, I can tell you what won't work, telling them that they have to go, that if they don't go, something bad is going to happen to them, that they're disappointing you and God, that you cannot scold a person. Think about it this way. How did Christ do it? How did Christ do it? He didn't get people into relationship to God by scolding them. And he didn't get them in a relationship by God to God by lecturing them. How'd he do it? How'd he do it? Like this. He stretched out his arms, welcoming everyone. He gave an example of what the beauty of love is like. And in the beauty of that self-sacrificial love, a stony heart will melt. If what You know, one time I said to a teacher in a Catholic school who just drove me past patience, I said to that teacher, you are modeling the mind of God to these children. And you know what you model? Arbitrary, wrathful, imperious, irrational, hateful, spiteful, malicious. She said to me, all I can say, Mrs. Stump, is if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it exactly the same way. Well, you know, do you think that would draw anybody to God, that kind of attitude? How do you model? How do you model Christ in your life? What are we called to be? Light and salt. Think about it. Think about it. No one goes into the kitchen to cook salt to make salt for dinner. Salt is not made to be something that you eat or something that you have as your main dish. It's made to have other things be more tasty. You put salt on the dish so that people can taste the chicken better. And it's like that for light also. Nobody turns on the light in the room in order to be able to see the light in the room. You turn on the light in the room to see what else is in the room. We are called to be salt and light so that other people can taste and see the goodness of the Lord. That's the point. You be salt so other people can taste God's goodness. Taste it. Not have a lecture about it, but taste it. You be light so other people can see the goodness of the Lord, not be lectured about it. And that is the only idea God ever had that really would work because that's the idea he used in Christ. Like that. That's what I would say. And in the end, you know, you are not responsible for your adult children. If one person could be single-handedly able to get another person to the Lord, we would not have needed the Messiah. Human beings are, in the end, in control. Not because they can do good stuff by themselves, but because they can do bad stuff by themselves. They can do bad stuff by themselves. If one person could get another person into the church, then God would not have lost Lucifer, the son of the morning. But he did. But he did. So you may not be able to get your adult children into the church. Your responsibility is to be light and salt for them and their responsibility is to live their lives. And you know, even if they're not in the church now, you don't know you don't know what will happen to them by the time they die. You don't know. You don't know. And anyway, in the end, it's God's problem, it's not your problem. They are his beloved children. It's up to him too. You are not solely responsible for them. That's what I want to say about that one. Um, 
Oh, I see. Well, I'm not sure I've got these questions. I may need a little help from whoever asked them, but the question says, if we must forgive those who are not repentant, isn't that requiring a higher standard than the priests have the power to grant or deny absolution? Well, um, the priests have the power to grant or deny absolution. That's right. And you don't. That's right. So all you can do is forgive. The priest can forgive and absolve, which you can't do. To absolve requires that the person being absolved repent. But you don't need that condition for forgiving. You can forgive somebody who's unrepentant, but you can't absolve somebody who's unrepentant. So there's a higher standard for priests than there is for us. All we are responsible for is the desires of our own heart. The priest is responsible for something about the other guy, which requires also repentance on the part of that other guy. So that's, that's how that works. Okay, and here's the last of these questions. Um, it seems appropriate to acknowledge what's going on in the media and either comment on it or promise that we'll hear some more at a different time. Um, not sure I get this question. But I think it must mean something like this. What a lot of garbage there is in movies and what a lot of garbage there is on television and what a lot of incredible garbage is available on the internet. Pornography, child abuse, all this stuff. I'm thinking that's what the question's asking about. And you know what? Did anybody make you watch it? Don't watch it. You think, yeah, but what about the kids? Well, you know, throw the TV out. Limit what kids can see on the Internet. Exercise control over what movies they see. And stay away from that garbage yourself. You know, I see very few movies. I watch virtually no television. Why should I? It's so filled with garbage. Do I want that garbage in my mind? I don't think so. And there are so many things of beauty, so many good and useful things that you can substitute for that trash. Throw the stupid television out and exercise control over what you see in the movies and on the Internet. There's tons of good stuff out there. You want to see a wonderful movie, try The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which shows you what God can do in a great human being in the worst of circumstances. There's good stuff out there. Don't watch the garbage. Don't watch the garbage. So I don't know if that answers the question, but as far as I understood it, that's what I would say. Want to try one more question? Two more questions? Are you? Do you want to try questions from the floor without something in the question box? Is anyone desirous of asking a question? There's a question. I see you. You're going to have to yell a little because you... Doesn't matter. Yeah. 
think I'm so I think I'm sort of getting it. I was talking with my sister in law about why I am so Catholic with yeah. all this yeah. you know stuff going on with yeah. Jesus yeah. and stuff. And I said, I am Catholic because of scripture and because of the Holy Eucharist. She said, Us Lutherans believe in the Holy Eucharist as the true presence of Jesus Christ. And I said, No, you can't. <laughs> You are not, that's um, what I'm looking for, uh, apostles. Yeah, apostolic ministry. And she said, oh, you Catholics, you just believe that. And I don't know where they got I think it's in the Bible. She says, it's not in my Bible. So I went home, I looked on the internet, and it said that the Lutherans do believe that in body, in the bread and wine, that there is the body and blood of Jesus. But it says substantially and not transcendent. <laughs> so I understand I, all this stuff. This is the world I live in. This is my world. But I, yeah. I don't know how. I mean, I was really confused when I read that online that they even believe that it is the body and blood of Jesus. So I would just like that to be cleared up. Thank you. So there are two questions here. One is, what's the difference between Lutherans and Catholics on the Eucharist? And the other question is, how do we think about folks who aren't Catholic? Now, um, I'm Catholic. I like being Catholic. I'm not going to leave the church because all of the garbage. It's not their church. It's not the church of the predators. It's our church. I'm not going to leave the church because there are predators in it. It's not their church. So, so I like being Catholic. I think there are important things about being Catholic. But here is the thing to notice, and this is really important. So I'll say something about the Eucharist in a minute, but here's the really important thing to notice. When Christ says, when Christ says his famous speech in the Gospel of John, what does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Guess what he didn't say? The following beliefs, the following creeds, the following catechisms, the following communities, the following human institutions, the following bits of the church. He didn't say any of those things are the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am. Now, I myself think that there are, is more help in getting to him through the Catholic Church than in other ways for most people at this time in history. But it remains the case that what Christ called people to do is not learn the catechism. He called people to come to him. And here's the thing to notice. So, so I don't know how to say this to you just right, but um, I am a world-renowned expert in philosophical theology. I know this stuff better than most people in the world. That's just a fact of the matter. It's not bragging. It's just the way it is. But what I think is that there are the uneducated, the people who, who don't really understand this stuff, who are God's great heroes and God's great saints all over God's world. All over God's world. So consider, uh, consider the Amish, who certainly don't like Catholics and who certainly don't hold Catholic views of the Eucharist, but I have been at what they call the Lord's Supper with them, and a more reverent, deep, devout group would be hard to find. 
they come to Christ through the funny theology that they have about what they're doing. See what I mean? So Christ says, when I come again, will I find any faith on the earth? Good question. Good question. We are called to love one another and not to fight with one another about esoteric things. Guess what will not happen when you are at the turnstile at the gate of heaven? You will not be quizzed on your views of the Eucharist. You will face Christ and either you will like what you see or you won't. That's what happens at the turnstile. So I would say don't fight with your sister-in-law about it. But if you want to understand how it works, it goes something like this. Everybody in Chrysostom agrees Christ said, this is my body. Okay? Everybody agrees it's his body. And um, everybody also agrees, looks like bread, tastes like bread, squishes like bread. So now the question is, how is it that something which looks like bread, tastes like bread, and so on, really is the body of Christ? How is that possible? My guy is Thomas Aquinas. And he's my friend, and he's a genius. And he, he worked out a really complicated, philosophically sophisticated, wonderful idea about how it can be that this is Christ's body, but it also still looks and tastes like bread. It's a great theory, but it's very sophisticated, very complicated. It's kind of the particle physics of theology. So it's hard to understand, and it looks cumbersome. Do you know what I mean? It looks kind of like it's too complicated to live as a theory. I don't think it is, but it looks that way. So when Luther came along, Luther said something like this. He said, it is Christ's body. It really is Christ's body. People said to him, well, um, how is it Christ's body? And if you, if you promise not to quote me on this, I'll tell you what the answer was. Luther's answer was, I don't know and I don't care. It is, and that's enough for me. And so he called his theory consubstantiality, by which he meant, and that's pretty hard to figure out what he meant, but the point remains that what he was rejecting was Aquinas' super complicated theory of transubstantiation. He wasn't rejecting Christ's claim, this is my body. So your sister-in-law is right. Lutherans do accept this is Christ's body. This is Christ's body. They just don't accept the terrific theory given by my guy Aquinas about how that could be possible. See what I mean? So for most ordinary people, think about it this way. For most ordinary people, if you don't understand anything about particle physics, it really doesn't matter at all. You get through your day just fine. You know that if you drop your chair on the head of your sister-in-law, it will hurt her. The chair will come down. That's as much physics as you need to know. (laughs) But it is nice that we've got in the world somewhere somebody who can work out the particle physics. And if you're working really hard at the particle physics, in theology, you're going to think about Aquinas' line. Wow, that is really cool. That transubstantiation is really cool. But for most people, it really won't matter. What will matter is whether when you go to the Eucharist, you face the face of your Savior and say to him what you need to say. That's what you've got to do what a wonderful story. I have one request, everybody. I said to Dr. Stum, I mean, I cannot tell you all how busy she is, 
the fact that she's here, I already wrote you, is a total miracle. We are so grateful. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad you're here, too. And those were all great questions. I liked them a lot. Mm-hmm. It's just her generosity. But here's the thing. I said, Dr. Stump, I can promise you that we will, as a body of people, really pray for her and the amazing work that she's doing for the church. So can we say we will do that? Thank you very much because I covet your prayers. For sure I do. Absolutely I do. Thank you. Thank you.